You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. A scripture reading this afternoon is taken from two passages in the New Testament. We turn first of all to John chapter 1, the verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Our second scripture reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 2, the verses 10 through 18. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abram's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This afternoon we wish to pay attention to the doctrinal side 
to the incarnation of our Savior. And we'll do that along the lines of the confession of the Apostles' Creed as explained in Lord's Day 14. What do you confess when you say he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus he is also the true seed of David and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin, in which I was conceived and born. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the section of the Apostles' Creed on the second person of the Trinity is by far the longest and the most explicit. And one reason why this is so is that the person and work of our Lord and Savior is crucial to God's glory and our eternal well-being. Another is that the person and work of Jesus the Christ is also one of the most contested issues about which differences of opinion can exist. There have been lots of discussions on this issue in the Christian church in the past. And it's not one of those issues about which differences of opinion can be side by side. They are issues which touch the essence of the Christian religion. They shape our faith in God. And we need to be clear on these issues. We need to have the right faith. And one of these issues when it comes to our Savior concerns the human origin of our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's how the Apostles' Creed puts it. The Creed of Nicaea, which is our oldest creed, puts it, uses a few more words. It says, Who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. A later creed, the Athanasian Creed, uses many words. Because the issue just would not go away. And the church felt the need to articulate her faith more precisely. And so with the Athanasian Creed we confess, it is necessary, however, unto eternal salvation that he who would be saved should also believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now the right faith is that we should believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is both equally God and man. He is God from the Father's substance, begotten before time. He is man from His mother's substance, born in time. Perfect God, perfect man, composed of a human soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father in respect of His divinity, less than the Father in respect of His humanity who, although he is God and man, is nevertheless not two, but one Christ. He is one, however, not by the transformation of his divinity into flesh, 
but by the taking up of his humanity into God. One certainly not by confusion of substance, but by oneness of person. For just a soul and flesh are one man, so God and man are one Christ. That's a lot of words. And the language is quite strong. It is necessary to eternal salvation to rightly believe the incarnation. It's very dear to the church, this confession. This afternoon we wish to see why that is. We listen to God's word with this theme. We have faith in the Son of God who became a man of flesh and blood. Pay attention to three matters. First of all, he is and remains true God. Secondly, he became a true man. And then thirdly, he did it for us. First of all, he is and remains true God. A survey of many religions in this world indicates that many religions argue the need for mediators between the most powerful being and man. In many religions, the most supreme God does not relate to human beings directly. There are so-called intermediate beings. It's true for the religions that were held by the peoples among whom Israel of the Old Testament dwelt. Take, for example, the worship of Baal and Asherah. Baal and Asherah, or Ashtaroth. There are names you sometimes read in the Bible. And what you may not know is that Baal and Asherah are actually not supreme gods. They were actually intermediary gods. In the pantheon of the Phoenician and Canaanite religion, they're actually the children of a father figure called Il. And Il had all manner of offspring. Baal and Asherah were just two of these. And that offspring was responsible for the course of events on earth. So when it comes down to it, Baal and Asherah were not almighty. They were powerful. They were more powerful than people. But they were not considered almighty. Analysis of their existence makes clear that they had divine aspects to them and human aspects to them. They had divine properties. They had power in the supernatural world. And they had human properties. They were capricious. They could be jealous of each other. A human being could never be sure of them. During the time of the Greeks and the Romans, this religion had developed somewhat. The father god figure is almost gone. He remains only in the most supreme of the lower gods. Zeus, Jupiter. And then there's a pantheon, all manner of gods who are related to each other. And as the Father God figure disappeared behind the scene, a new level of in-betweens came into existence, the so-called demigods. These demigods mediated between the divine world and the human world. And critical scholars will argue that the Israelite religion also felt the need for in-between beings. The argument goes, having come into contact with the Persian religions, the Israelites adopted the existence of angels into their religion. Angels are argued to be the Israelite version of intermediary beings between the supreme God and mankind. 
But you'll know such reasoning doesn't fit the testimony of Scripture. For starters, angels are neither directly related to God, nor directly related to human beings. They are beings of a totally different category. They're as different from God and human beings as animals and plants are. Moreover, while angels do sometimes speak on behalf of God, God also speaks directly with people. So angels in Christianity are different from the demigods and intermediary beings of other religions. No, the Bible tells us something different. The Bible tells us that where the relationship between God and man is concerned, there is no need for an in-between being. When God communicates with man, he does so in person. Jesus is not a lower God, like Baal and Asherah, or a demigod, as the Greeks and Romans knew them. No. Jesus is God himself. Some like to use the phrase God hyphen man. God man. While the term as such is not wrong, we should not understand it to indicate that by nature, Jesus belongs to a category of beings in which some of his attributes are divine and others are human. He is not partly God and partly man. No, the Christ is and remains true and eternal God. The testimony of the Spirit through the Apostle John is very clear on this matter. The Word was God. Or the words of Jesus to which I've referred in many sermons. Before Abraham was born said Jesus, I am. John eight fifty eight. I am. Jesus is not a child of Yahweh El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. Jesus is Yahweh El Shaddai in person. He is the unique Son of God. Not only unique because He is the only Son of God to share in God's essence, He is unique also because the father-son relationship between God the Father and God the Son has the two more closely related to each other than even a human father and son. Said Christ, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is not a God-man, partly divine and partly human. He is totally God. And the fact of his divine conception points us to that as well. Jesus was not born of the will of a man and woman. He was born in the most miraculous way. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The angel Gabriel pointed out to Mary that this would be a clear indication of the holiness of Jesus. He is special. His incarnation in no way changes the essence of his divinity. He was God and he is God. He remains God. The conception of the Christ makes clear to us that we should not consider the Lord Jesus Christ to be an ordinary human being. No. He is the word of God that was God and that became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Now, we can't comprehend how Jesus the Christ is both divine and human at the same time. However, that should not make us question this doctrine of Scripture or change its testimony. Instead, we should worship God, filled with awe for the miracle of the divine conception, for the miracle of someone who is both true God and a true human being. And the fact that our mediator is and remains true God completely That's a comforting and reassuring truth. You know, in many religions, the go-between is partly one and partly the other. I could mention here too that when it comes to the Jehovah's Witnesses, they turn the Lord Jesus into some other sort of creature that acts as a go-between. But in the case of Christ, He is not just the go-between. From a human perspective, from our perspective, Christ is the other party. The Christ has not only reconciled us to God, He is the one with whom we have been reconciled. He's not just our advocate, our lawyer, before the judgment seat of God. He is the judge Himself. He is the I Am, who has been hurt by the rebelliousness of man. If you have communicated with Him, if you relate to Christ, you've communicated with the Father. You've related to the Father. Christ is not an in-between being. In part this and in part that. Jesus is and remains true God. And that has two implications when it comes to our life before God. First of all, if you want to get in touch with God, if you want to relate to God, you cannot do it without Jesus the Christ. He's absolutely necessary. Deny the Christ, or deny whom He exactly is, and then there will be no way for you to relate to God. He said Himself, no one comes to the Father except by Me. And that's a crucial issue when it comes to being a church of God. That there is only one way to the kingdom of heaven. And those who deny the Christ, or misrepresent Him, obscure the road to salvation. And secondly, it also means that when you hear the Christ, you're hearing God Himself. In other religions, there's always doubts. Is this message being passed on in God's name? Is it truly God's message? The Pope claims to speak on behalf of God. But is what he says right? Should we believe the prophet Mohammed Or Joseph Smith of the Mormons? Do the gurus of Sikhism bring us the divine? Those are questions. And there are questions because the intermediaries are not God themselves. In true Christianity, that's not an issue. Listen to Christ and you hear God Himself speak in person. Christ did not say, thus says the Lord. Christ said, truly, truly, I tell you. And so do you sense, brothers and sisters, why the divine conception of Christ is such an important issue to the church? Denying the conception by the Holy Spirit implies denying the total divinity of Jesus the Christ. And it's vital, it's vital to our faith to realize and confess 
that the Christ was not conceived as an ordinary human being is, he is and remains true and eternal God. But, he did become a true human being. Let's pay attention to that in second place. Said already, in many religions for God to communicate with man, intermediary go-betweens are needed. Well, the same is often argued in religions when it comes to communicating between man and God. That's the other direction. For man to reach the center of cosmic power, he would have to reach beyond himself. He would have to make superhuman efforts. And in the ancient religions, it would mean going to great lengths to get the lower gods on your side. It meant sacrificing to them. You sacrificed your harvest. You sacrificed your best animals. It would even reach the extreme of human sacrifice. Be it figuratively speaking, by giving your children to serve in a temple which usually meant a life of prostitution, or literally by killing your children. For an illustration of the extremes, just think of the Baal priests on Mount Carmel, the showdown with Elijah. They cut themselves, they made their blood flow, just to get Baal on their side. Another way to get the powers on your side is more spiritual. One may think of an ascetic life or a mystical approach to religion. Asceticism implies denying yourself all manner of enjoyment to focus on the spiritual. It may even mean living segregated from society, be it as a hermit, belonging to some religious order of nuns or monks. Such a life often combines itself with mysticism, the idea that the physical is to be disregarded because of the in favor of the spiritual. Prayer, meditation, form the key focus of life. And in such an approach to religion, rites and rituals play a vital role. Religion is about doing the right things in the right order, and then doing them frequently. Rites and rituals are the basis of Mormonism, form a key part to the Masonic Lodge, The Roman Catholic approach to the sacraments and prayer is much like this as well. The five pillars of Islam are another example. Basically, it all seems to suggest to get close to God, a human being should actually be more than just an ordinary human being. You have to reach like beyond yourself to touch base with God. You know what? That's not true. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. The Son of God became a human being of flesh and blood. So the letter to the Hebrews informs us. He became a real human being. Boys and girls, you know, we celebrated it yesterday. The Lord Jesus didn't come as an adult, as a grown-up from heaven. No. He has participated in all parts of human life. He spent nine months inside his mother Mary. He was born a helpless baby. He grew up, received an education, probably learned carpentry from Joseph, Mary's husband. 
He became an adult, paid taxes, knew both joy and sadness. He died, was buried. It was one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders had such a hard time with Jesus. He went to parties with tax collectors and sinners. Some even thought he was possessed by a demon or or simply that he was mad. For in many ways, he was so ordinary, so normal, so everyday. And the Jews expected the Messiah to be so different. Yes, the Son of God became part of history. There's a song that sings, Eternity stepped into time. Think about it. The Almighty subjected Himself to the natural laws found in creation. God became man. God became man. Flesh and blood. When He died, His body began to break down. Blood and water poured from the wound in His side. Says Romans 1 verse 4, As to His human nature, He was a descendant of David. So think about it. When God relates to Jesus, He's relating to a real human being. Not a superman, not an extraordinary man, a human being who isn't really a human being anymore. No, Jesus is a human being like you and me. As we read in Hebrews, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. God does not look for humanity through or via Jesus. He finds and meets it in Jesus. Jesus is humanity itself. The last Adam, as Scripture calls Him. In Christ, God meets with us. And the fact that Jesus is humanity, that makes atonement through substitution possible. Christ is not just our advocate, our lawyer with the Father, He is us and we are Him. He is the accused. That's deep. But that's what Paul, for example, means when he says, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Christ comes in our place. Whatever God would have me render in service to Him, Christ has rendered for me. The fact that Jesus the Christ is truly human It also means that He can identify with us in our deepest longings and needs. He knows what it is to feel abandoned, to feel afraid, to be sad. He knows from experience how how miserable a place this world is. Sometimes you hear people complain that this world is a miserable place and God is not doing anything about it. That's not true. It's quite the opposite. God became a human being to bear loneliness and rejection. Isaiah 53 paints a very clear picture of the extent to which God went. Jesus has known pain and misery like no other. Says Hebrews, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the Christ is and remains true God. He became a true human being. Now in the third place, He did it for us. Boys and girls, I've got a question for you first. 
Do you like celebrating your birthday? I'm sure you do. But did you know that there were some people in the Bible who did not? Job was one of those. When everything he had had been taken from him, when he was sick, itching all over, constantly scratching himself, that's when he said, I wish I had never been born. I wish that my birthday was not on the calendar. The prophet Jeremiah also had such a period in his life. He'd been thrown into prison for telling the people the word of God. He became a miserable man. And then he wished that he'd never been born. You know, sometimes people can have that. Life is so horrible that they wish they had never been born. Now, brothers and sisters, think for a moment of the Son of God. He knew what would happen to him during his earthly life. In fact, everybody could know it because Isaiah 53 foretold it. It wasn't a secret. The servant of the Lord would have a most horrible life. Despised, rejected, and murdered. Weighed down by the sins of men. When Job and Jeremiah looked at the misery of their lives, they wished they had never been born. When the Son of God saw the misery that would be His, He chose to be born. Imagine that. The Christ was willing to become a human being for you and me. To suffer for you and me. To die for you and me. He was born... To die. He chose to be born to die. You can't fathom that. Such love cannot be gauged. Such loyalty cannot be understood. The Son of God was prepared to become a human being with a miserable life that I might have a good life. He was willing to be abandoned by God, Lord's Supper form, that we might never more be forsaken by God. He was willing to go through hell so that we might never have to go there. That alone makes the birth of Christ special. He did it for us to save us. And that saving action of Christ already began with His conception and birth. Already there He took our place. He was conceived and born without sin. He had no sinful nature. As such, He is the perfect man acceptable to God. We are conceived and born in sin. And original sin alone is sufficient to condemn us. However, our sinfulness was imputed to Christ and His innocence and perfect holiness are imputed to us. Christ's work of having us justified already begins when He was conceived in Mary's womb. And also the work of sanctification begins in a sense there. For it is the Holy Spirit who has the Lord Jesus be born without the blemish of sin. And if the Spirit can pull that off with the man Jesus the Christ, when forming for the Christ a human body of flesh and blood, then the Spirit can pull that off with anyone. Those who have faith in Christ are being regenerated. They are undergoing a rebirth. 
Once we have been born again, we will be without sin. And let that be encouraging. We're on our way to becoming perfect people without sin. Exactly the same way our Lord and Savior is. It's an important matter. We have faith in the Son of God who became a man of flesh and blood. It's to our comfort that this happened. If God can become man, then man can approach God. The divine conception and virgin birth of Christ gives more certainty than any other religion offers with its intermediary beings and man's attempts to be superhuman in order to touch base with God. True Christianity does not confess it that way and will not teach it that way. For that's not the way Scripture presents it to us. That's not what God has told us. In Christ, God comes to us. Literally. In Christ, we come to God. Literally. In closing, one thing. Something that should have a stand in awe of God. For consider. Consider. What role... Did we human beings play in the conception and birth of Christ? None. None. It was the Father who sent the Son. It was the Son who willingly went. It was the Holy Spirit who made it happen. The only human element was a young girl who could only say, May it be to me as you have said. A willingness to serve, which is the fruit of faith, worked by God. That makes you see, it's all grace. It's amazing grace. That's what the conception and birth of our Savior at bottom are about. About God's saving grace. And so we confess, Emmanuel, God is indeed with us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.